0: We are back after a week away here on the Eagle. Heard we missed quite a bit. Let's catch up. Coming up on this episode of the Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines.
1: This was obviously a story that generated a lot of a lot of outrage. The problem with it is that the story fell apart within less than a week.
0: Last week, prestige limo company operator Nauman Hussein was convicted of manslaughter in the deaths of 20 people in one of the country's worst transportation disasters. We'll discuss the reactions to this highly anticipated verdict.
2: There's no way he's going to be convicted of manslaughter. That's way too uh, harsh. I think it'll be at the most guilty of criminally negligent homicide. I had no clue Whatsoever. I was so surprised.
0: And we'll find out why genealogists say the state of New York is making their jobs harder.
3: It's good to know your roots.
0: This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall.
1: If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash
3: subscribe.
0: Welcome to the Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. OK, let's discuss now what appeared in the Times Union and on TimesUnion.com this week. We are back now with Times Union editor-in-chief Casey Seiler. Uh, we took a little break from the podcast last week when absolutely nothing happened, uh, a.k.a. it was one of the bigger news weeks that I've seen here. Uh, so, so let's start at the top with a shooting that involved police in Clifton Park this week. What can you tell us about what happened there?
1: Yeah, a Tuesday morning, uh, just about a half hour after dawn, uh, sheriff's deputies, two of them were wounded, conducting a court authorized search on uh, an apartment in a complex up in Clifton Park. Anthony Zaremsky, who was the, the subject of the search warrant that was being executed, a uh, shot burst, according to police, and was killed in the return fire. One of the sheriff's deputies was uh, shot in the leg and apparently suffered an injury to his femoral artery, which is exceedingly serious. And uh, another was shot in the chest, but um, luckily was was wearing um, protection. Uh, he was 23 years old, Mr. Zaremski, and had a a very long criminal record for, especially for someone. Of so few years, and uh, it, this was part of a, a, a local, state, and federal uh, operation that uh, resulted in a number of searches at right around the same time, looking for um, drugs and weapons. So there you go, a very, uh, obviously a, a tragic outcome for the uh, the young man, but luckily the deputies, you know, managed to get out of it without uh, fatality on the law enforcement side.
0: Moving on to kind of a roundup of stories, there have been a lot in our headlines lately about migrants coming up into the Hudson Valley and upstate New York from New York City. Can you kind of give us a roundup of all of the headlines around that?
1: This obviously has been building for a couple of weeks and even a couple of months. As New York City's social services have been overwhelmed by uh, migrants who, of course, have been coming up from the southern border in uh, many ways, the city has been looking uh, for kind of relief valves, uh, especially in terms of residences for these migrants. So, in the last couple of weeks, uh, has been sending busloads of asylum seekers, which are a specific subset of you know the the migrants that are uh, that are coming across the border. With plans to house them in the hotels and motels, uh, usually in the Lower Hudson Valley, this has resulted, as we've uh, discussed before, I think, in a number of uh, state of emergency declarations from counties that do not want the migrants there. Many of them uh, led by uh, Republican county executives, including Rensselaer County in the in the Capital Region. But, other counties that have been instituting states of emergency, not to keep the migrants out necessarily, but to make sure that they will be able to tap the state and federal aid to support the services to assist basically in in provisioning and caring for the migrants who might appear. We've reported on the state looking at uh, SUNY campuses, including u uh, Albany as a potential, site where migrants could be housed temporarily. One kind of side story here that has crystallized a lot of the issues was a story that appeared uh, on a number of sites and was quickly picked up in the conservative media space in which uh, the director of uh, an organization in the Hudson Valley that assists families with premature infants and also veterans said that a group of homeless veterans had been evicted ousted from the hotel they had been staying in in favor of of migrants the the motive that was strongly suggested by this story was that since new york city was going to be paying more than this organization was paying the hotel the uh, homeless veterans had to go this was obviously a story that generated a lot of a lot of outrage The problem with it is that the story fell apart within less than a week. Sharon Tony Finch, who is the leader of this organization, herself a veteran, was unable to provide evidence that she had been paying to house these ostensible homeless veterans. And our Hudson Valley team, including Lana Bellini and Philip Pantuso, uh, managed to track down some homeless men who said that they had been recruited to pose as homeless veterans to basically back up this story. Sharon Tony Finch was honored um, in the state Senate, and I believe in the Assembly as well, last week. Um, those honors, or at least the Senate honor, was was taken away in the wake of the revelation that this story was was allegedly fictional. But a really good job of kind of truth-doctoring and fact-checking by Philip and Lana, as well as Brendan Lyons, who was working the story from our Capitol Bureau.
0: Absolutely. The Hudson Valley team has been doing a great job lately on a number of stories. All right, let's move on to a story that we posted about marijuana sales in New York. Apparently, we have a lot of supply, but not a lot of places to legally sell it yet. So what's going on there?
1: Yeah, um the aforementioned Mr. Lyons uh looked into growing frustration by cannabis farmers who of course uh since the legalization uh bill was passed 2 years ago um were encouraged to grow the crop that was going to fire up if you if you will the legal adult use recreational marijuana industry in New York. The problem is that the the rollout on the retail side has been so much slower than expected for a lot of reasons, including former Governor Andrew Cuomo's failure for several months to name people to, you know, the regulatory body that would help set this up to kind of more pandemic issues and just plain old bureaucratic um, foot dragging. There are only a dozen retail outlets across the state right now. It is very hard for just 12 retail outlets to sell the the marijuana crop that has already been grown. So these farmers are having a hard time finding uh, a market to sell their wares in. The suggestions that they have been asking for um, range from the state allowing kind of pop-up sites where uh, cannabis products could be sold a very very different type of farm stand from the one that that we are used to Jess um sure. as well as uh, sort of refining this uh this crop or uh, or at least a big section a big chunk of the crop into THC oil that um, would be much more I guess storable might be the word it's it's a bit of a mess and these farmers of course are facing you know uh serious issues economic straits
0: indeed more on that uh on timesunion.com and i have to say it is extraordinarily hard not to make puns when you're writing stories about marijuana
1: well strap in because i think we're about to turn to a story where it's even harder not to deploy puns
0: all right then let's dive right into this next slice of our segment here you'll see what i did there in a second An Albany woman is suing ShopRite for $35,000 because a pie that she bought there was mislabeled with the wrong flavor. Tell us more.
1: Yes, uh, a woman uh, apparently went to ShopRite, bought a pie that was labeled as an apple pie, when in fact it was a cherry pie. According to a photo that was attached to her lawsuit seeking $35,000 from ShopRite, Um, She cut off what uh, what looks like a a rather small wedge of the pie to give to her daughter. And according to the lawsuit, her her daughter became ill for the weekend. And the the suit was uh, filed in Albany County. We will see how it goes. It includes some truly delightful legalistic language. Um, I will just share a bit of it with you right now. If a cherry pie is misbranded as an apple pie, and the consumer has a strong preference for or dislikes cherries, they may experience disappointment, dissatisfaction, or a negative eating experience. That Jess, I want to hear in Gregory Peck's voice from To Kill a Mockingbird. Don't you?
0: (laughs) I'm sure there's an AI generator that can help us.
1: Make it it happen, won't you?
0: And also, if I could file a lawsuit for every negative eating experience, I feel like the court system would would break down. I don't I don't know. That's just
1: I I noted on Facebook that I asked for a double toasted bagel and I got one that was barely even single toasted last week. And surely that's got to be worth at least five grand. Look, I mean, you know, business groups have been saying for years that uh, the civil legal system allows suits that many businesses would consider to be frivolous. We, of course, will be um, following this one as it works its way through the digestive system of the the civil courts to see whether this ends with perhaps a settlement for slightly less than $35,000. But who's to say?
0: I I have no follow-up to that. That was perfect. Let's end it right there, Casey. We'll check back in with you next week.
1: All right, Jess. Thanks.
0: All right, now Casey Seiler spoke with Larry Rulison earlier this week. Larry Rulison is our reporter who has been covering the trial of Nauman Hussein in Schoharie this week. Nauman Hussein was convicted last week of manslaughter in the deaths of 20 people. It was one of the country's worst transportation disasters in October of 2018 in Schoharie County. The verdict came down last week while we were away, but we are going to go back and sort of download and talk about what happened. Here's Casey and Larry. Do
2: you find the defendant guilty or not guilty? Guilty.
1: So, Larry, we are talking exactly a week After the verdict came in in the the trial of Nauman Hussein, the operator of Prestige Limousine, I Mm want to just first get your sense of where you thought this case was going or what the resolution was going to be is probably a better way to put it when you heard just after right around lunchtime last Wednesday that the jury had reached a verdict.
2: Yeah, Casey, um, that's very interesting. I I remember texting my wife, who was texting me, saying, "What's going on?" Um, and I said, "Well, there's no way he's going to be convicted of manslaughter. That's way too uh, harsh. I think it'll be at the most uh, guilty of criminally negligent homicide." I had no clue whatsoever. I was so surprised. <laughs>
1: can Can you describe the the reaction in the courtroom when the first guilty verdict was was read? Because I would imagine that for the families, you know, and, and as well as friends of Nauman Hussein, it was very clear that once the first guilty verdict was read, it was going to be guilty of the same count on all twenty.
2: right. I remember turning to Rose, uh, the other Times Union reporter who was with me. Um, Right before and I said, "Okay, I don't know what's going to happen after this, but um, I'm just going to assume that all pandemonium is going to break loose and uh, kind of felt like you're on the edge of like a roll, like when you're going in a roller coaster right over the edge. You just don't know what you're going to feel. And then the guilty verdict and then this, this sense, this like almost a surprise within the courtroom, like gasps of like a surprise then you could hear people sort of start crying and then like, I don't want to say happiness, but
1: you could tell they were glad. Right. The word might be taken from the classical Greek theaters catharsis, you know, that's That's perfect. Yeah,
2: exactly. Like after years of just waiting and anxious and I don't know what, yes, it was a release. It's the only way I can describe it. And obviously you're watching the, uh, Nauman's brother and his fiancee just get really upset and they're sort of, they were always sitting alone and she left and he came back. So then you're watching that, but then the families are just like hugging each other and you could tell they're like, just finally, finally, finally. And then they finally said all of them, all the 20. um, And it just, it did seem to take long. Like the one dad had said, It was just, I just wasn't prepared for it. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it in my life. I'm happy, yet sad, which is a difficult thing to express and explain. I'm happy for my son. He's finally gotten justice, and that is exactly what I've been
1: fighting for. Four and a half years. I, I I want to thank the jury for doing an amazing job and listening to the evidence. And today is really about the families. And we just want to make sure that, that you guys spend time with the families because it's really about
2: their day today.
1: Because journalism is relentless, uh, you immediately turn from writing your story on the verdict and the and the reaction to writing a story that appeared in our Sunday edition that looked back on Schoharie County District Attorney Susan Mallory and... The very sort of twisty, I mean, talk about a roller coaster, the criticism that she faced for her handling of the case, especially the anger that she faced from so many of the relatives of the dead after she agreed to a plea deal that would have let Nauman Hussein walk with no prison time, with just five years probation and a thousand hours of community service. That 2021 plea deal was, of course, scuttled by Judge Peter Lynch, and um, that is is what led to trial. Talk a little bit about Susan Mallory, if you could kind of summarize uh, some of the points that you made in the story, both about the way that she kind of inducted herself and the fact that this is a victory that she was almost shoved into.
2: Yeah, right after the verdict, I remember thinking to myself well what the heck why the heck was there ever a plea deal to begin with and then when um I started delving into Susan Mallory and um what she had done in this case and looked at it now in this like new light I I still I have no idea what she was doing and that troubles me the most I mean you know I did want to give her a fair shot and I think that you know, a lot of the way she acted was her personality in terms of, like, not wanting to talk to the press or things like that. But when I looked at Bartlett's ruling, Bartlett's original ruling on the plea deal and explaining it and then contrasting it to uh, Judge Lynch, I felt like I hadn't had really grasped how, how that plea deal maybe was not...
1: As just Judge Lynch put it, in his opinion the plea deal was legally deficient yeah
2: so that's been so tough looking back and give her the benefit of the doubt but the way she treated the uh national transportation safety board during the early days of the, the investigation you think all she ever said when she was complaining about them wanting access to the limo was that they're going to come in and ruin my chance for a trial so why a year later, like uh, nine months later, you, you do this, the most lenient possible plea deal ever. I think that's one of the biggest questions here. Why, if the jury, if a jury who had been, you know, it was really tough to get this jury, they found, now I'm going to say guilty in under six hours. And none of the stuff about Mavis or the FBI or any of that mattered to them or the case. So I just I'm completely uh, befuddled by... We even had a plea deal and why she went from being so hardcore to just seemingly, you know, falling over on this. I, I feel bad, but she hasn't talked to us to s- explain it. Are you concerned that why you- haven't they been indicted?
1: That's my question. Where's Mavis and all of this? The, this is the end of the criminal case against Nauman Hussain. It is not uh, the end of the, the legal wrangling here. Many of the families have, of course, brought suit against Mavis Discount Tire, the you know, the Saratoga Springs outlet that fraudulently told uh, Damon Hussein that it had done brake work and then didn't do it and also gave the death car, as it were, a DMV sticker that it never should have received. I guess based on what you know, if you were Mavis discount Tire, looking at the results of this trial, would you be more likely or less likely to attempt to settle with the families um, based on the evidence? In other words, Nauman Hussein has been found criminally liable of manslaughter, but that does not exactly exonerate Mavis for what was or was not done with the limo, correct?
2: After uh, Lee Kinlan... Dressed down um, the uh, former uh, manager of that store, Virgil Park, in a uh, cross examination. I think that they are more likely to want to consider perhaps considering a settlement here than than not, because that that was some epic theater uh, that probably can. I'm assuming could be used um, at civil trial, and so there was no uh, way around that. Uh, so. I think Mavis's uh, case, to uh, you know, they tried to get uh, themselves dismissed as a defendant. Um, their their case is weakened substantially throughout this trial. So, I you know I don't know uh, what they're going to do or uh, what they, a lawyer would say, but um, it appears to me like they, they, they might get hammered at trial.
1: Yeah, it, it's important to note that in a criminal case, it's. The uh, the standard is proving it um, beyond a reasonable doubt, and in a civil case, of course, it's a preponderance of the evidence, which is very different. It's essentially fifty one percent, right? Larry, I really appreciate it. This has been, you know, you've been covering this case for four and a half years now, and it, it has been hard, uh, grinding work. And as I noted in an email to the staff the day after, the day after the verdict, a lot of good work went into this, but nobody's good work more than yours. It has meant a lot, of course, to uh, the families of the victims in this case, but it's meant a lot to our entire community. So thanks a lot for your good work. Oh, I appreciate that, Casey.
0: As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com or on any of our social channels. After the break, is New York State making the job of a genealogist harder? We'll find out. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy LePertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade.
1: Available now wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Are you a fan of the show Finding Your Roots? Or have you taken one of those mail-in ancestry tests? The popularity of genealogy and tracing one's lineage has grown exponentially in recent years. That in turn has given rise to a boom of amateur genealogists who use public records and other sources to establish family trees. With New York State's history as both one of the original colonies and as the port of entry for millions of immigrants during the late 19th and early 20th centuries and beyond, it's been an epicenter for this type of research. But these days, genealogists are saying the state is making it harder for them to do their jobs. Requests for public birth, marriage, and death records from the state health department, which just a few years ago were very accessible, are now nearly impossible to get in any sort of timely fashion. Reporter Rick Carlin looked into this recently, and I pulled him aside to learn a little bit more. You know, I personally find genealogy and, you know, making connections and finding your roots and all that stuff absolutely fascinating
3: <laughs> i think a lot of people do yeah everyone is sort of interested in that and i think everyone has their own family history that can be turned into an interesting narrative Absolutely. Oh, where, where did grandma come from when did she arrive in new york or what farm did grandpa grow up on and what what has happened to that since then and so forth everyone can relate to that. So I, I actually have received a, a number of emails uh, since that story came out last Sunday.
0: Oh, that's great. Uh,
3: who, are, who are doing genealogy and have have run into snags <laughs> with the oh, state wow. health department. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. there are other sources, obviously, such as the, the Latter-day Saints libraries and so forth.
0: Now, have you personally done any ancestry, like any genealogy yourself?
3: A little bit. I, I had a... Um, Actually, a friend who uh, was uh, quoted in the story, Carol Duffy Presser, who's done this. Mm-hmm. She just, for the heck of it, when she was starting out with this, researched my uh, mom's side. Of Actually, she did both, just to see how. But and, and you can only go back so far if you've come from Europe in nineteenth, twentieth century. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and it was pretty accurate from what I could tell because it was stuff that I I knew. You know family lore about my grandparents i have a I believe i it's a second cousin who i think it was a phd thesis in her sociology studies who researched my grandfather's side of the family because they had they had lived in a commune it was a russian jewish farming commune in southern new jersey Oh wow. Called the Alliance Colony and we I've been down there. The, the the graveyard is still there. That's about it. But it's farm country. It's still farm country. They had arrived there from Russia in the late 19th century and that's where my grandfather was born, basically on a tomato and corn farm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I had I had done it myself and found a long-lost cousin and solved a family mystery. Like it was, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. There's things like that. And so it makes it kind of makes you want to do that. It makes me want to start to look into this stuff. You know, one of these days when I have some a spare moment, I might swing by the uh, the Mormon archives just to see how far back I can go. And I know that one sister, one of my sisters, did one of those DNA testing kits. It was hard for me to make any sense out of it. It was yep. it was very vague and very broad. It was like, okay, I'm related to half the planet, <laughs> as, as 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 we all probably are. Right. If
0: you have if you have Russian Jewish heritage, we are likely related.
3: <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah.
0: So where does that put us now, you know, with your story and researching, obviously people are really interested in finding out their genealogy for various yeah. reasons. You know, there's there's some people who just do it, you know, for fun as a hobby. There's some sure. people who do it, you know, to solve crimes, like, you know, what what's the crux of your story?
3: Well, the story that ran on Sunday was that one of the sources that people use and I actually, I did this once for my, uh, my grandfather on my dad's side. Or for some reason, I, I was interested in getting the death record years and years ago, and it was very easily obtained uh, from the Department of Health. But now, if you're doing a gene- genealogical survey and you want to find when, your, per, for instance, your grandmother died in New York City, the State Department of Health, they have, they maintain a, a death index where they basically have records of all these deaths and births. And it used to be pretty easy to get. You would, you could call them, I believe, or write them, or there was even a walked-up window in the Department of Health's main offices here in Albany, uh, where you can make a request, and they would also do expedited requests. Wow, that changed a couple of years ago, and now you have to, it has to be a written request. And what I'm hearing from genealogists, it, it's taking years. Wow to get Why? the answered. And I don't have a good answer from the Department of Health. They sent a rather terse, terse email referencing the pandemic. Things got scrambled during the COVID pandemic. Although I've heard from several genealogists, Department of Health says no, but several genealogists told me that they've heard that another problem was several years ago when New York, like other states, was shifting to the real ID driver's licenses, which has since been put on hold, it's been delayed, that the DOH was, the people were deployed to work on that project, that they had to shift over to verify someone's birthplace or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. They they needed to do that. The DOH doesn't say that. They All they did was reference COVID. You know, again, it's not, not the only source of records, but it is. it is a, it's an authoritative source, and a, a lot of people use it. The other thing that a lot of people use in, in Washington, D.C. is the Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is the part of Homeland Security. That will give you, you your immigration records, which is clearly important in New York because so many immigrants came through Ellis Island you know, over the last, what, 150 years. Right, might want to want to look up those records that, you know the waves of, of immigrants coming through history through Ellis Island, and they are proposing to greatly increase the fees to hmm. to hundreds of dollars to do index searches.
0: And it's just because and, there's and, so much po- it's so much more popular now, right? They're kind of capitalized.
3: Part of it, there's been a bit of a boom. Um, you know, you have the shows uh, "Finding Your Roots" with Henry Louis Gate. yep, where he. he usually it's celebrities and and they really dig into where they came from and their roots and their, you know, their ancestors. There's the, the DNA services now where you can send in a, you know, a swab. Yeah. Yeah. And they can give you an idea of where, where you, you know, where, where, how far back are you? Do you come from central Russia or do you come from North Africa or do you come from Asia, from India? You can put together. A database of people with similar DNA profiles right mm-hmm. from there you can see if there's similarity in the names and they can say oh these people might have been related at one point several generations ago and that can be another launching point or starting off point to trace someone's ancestry
0: it's so much more accessible now right like the average person could sure dabble yeah. in genealogy versus like certainly experts
3: Yes, you can go online and, and do a lot of this stuff online. Whereas, you know, 15 years ago, you couldn't do that. You had to go to the sources, you had to go to the libraries, you had to go to the archives. You know, a lot of genealogists will tell you, you still need to verify. I, I spoke with one fellow in Pennsylvania who was actually, he went to Italy to, he was doing some work for a family. They wanted to, they wanted to see if they were related. I think they were actually in Rochester, they were an Italian family. And there's some different. There's some minor differences in the spellings of the last names. And he actually traveled to their ancestral home in Italy to check the birth records that they have. Oh, wow. And some of the, some of the communities still have the birth records. They might have baptismal records, marriage records, etc. cetera.
0: Who are these genealogists? I mean, are they people who have to be certified somehow? Or are they just like hobbyists?
3: There's really two broad sectors. There are people who are just really avid hobbyists, and some of the avid hobbyists, they make it their career <laughs> and th- there are some certifications that one can get in the genealogy field not not everyone has that, but that that's you know that is one of the things that people do and i I did interview one woman in Gilderland who was she's she was an i t and uh, she basically retired from that and decided to become a genealogist and she'll Get paid, and she she said a lot of her work is when you'll have a you know an you know, a family historian, someone is doing a, a history of the Marshall family, yeah. and they hit a dead end. But they go back four generations to a you know a city somewhere in Europe or in Italy, and then that's as far as they can get. And they might contact someone like like her because there there's a lot of tools. There's probably a lot of the tr- tricks of the trade. Yeah. And I'm sure that it can also become very time consuming.
0: Oh my gosh, yeah, obsessively uh, so.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure people get obsessed with it. Yeah. It's good to know your roots.
0: All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We will be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Larry Ruleison, Rose Schneider, and Rick Carlin for their contributions to this episode.